welcome back to a very special episode of the Myron Schultz Podcast on Time. Chief Investment Strategist at Janice Henderson, Professor of Finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Nobel Laureate in Economic Sciences, among many other accomplishments and responsibilities that would take way too long to list, Myron shares his unique insights with us here. These podcast episodes are aimed at sophisticated investors and those who wish to be sophisticated investors and are intended to be thought-provoking and perhaps even controversial. We hope you leave each episode with more questions than you started, and we invite you to send feedback or questions to Myron at askmyron at janicehenderson.com. Today's episode is specifically about decarbonization of portfolios to coincide with the publication in the Journal of Investment Management of a paper by Myron and Ashwin Alankar on carbon emissions and asset management. But more generally, it's about the role of innovation in finance. Time and uncertainty are linked to new ideas, ventures, innovations, and their development. A key economic observation is that infrastructure to support innovation must follow innovation. There is an old adage to not put the horse before the cart. Seldom would a war general, for example, order the ordnance to the front line and then follow with his troops moving forward. The same is true with financial innovation or innovation generally. Innovators go first, followed by infrastructure to support only the successful or seemingly successful innovations. Infrastructure includes all of the support and control functions of the activity. And the pace of implementation and infrastructure support are uncertain, sometimes going faster and other times slower given market forces. Under uncertainty, this makes sense. If a valuable innovation were a sure thing, it would already have been implemented successfully. Many innovations fail, however, either because they were too early or their value was overestimated and demand was insufficient to sustain it. We have heard that the early bird gets the worm. The counter adage, however, is that the early bird gets frozen to death. With uncertainty, innovators move forward with implementations without building out all of the infrastructure to support their ideas. With failures, the expected cost would be too great to do so. Time unfolds, providing more information as to potential success. With partial successes, more infrastructure is built to support innovations and cement in success. Along these lines, I discuss a paper written with my colleague, Ashwin Alankar, Head of Asset Allocation Strategies at Janice Henderson. The paper is entitled Carbon Emissions and Asset Management, published in the Journal of Investment Management in its 2022 fall issue. The innovation described here is for portfolio managers to buy carbon credits to neutralize the CO2 emissions of their investment portfolio securities. We have heard the complaint that carbon credit market is new and that some credits are suspect. Although we believe that this perception has come from documentation of the actions of a few bad actors or carbon credit projects that fail, this market is growing and becoming important for those buying or selling carbon offsets as the world transitions to a greener economy. With the growth of the carbon credit market, 
comes new infrastructure support to solidify and sustain it. The market is thickening, becoming deeper, and is used extensively by major corporations and intermediaries. This is exactly what we would expect with increasing demonstrated demand and value over time. Success stimulates the development of infrastructure to support the market. As uncertainty as to value is resolved, infrastructure is built to complement and solidify innovations. Two major current approaches that portfolio managers use to be active in reducing CO2 emissions given the ESG movement in Europe and the United States are first to exclude firms or underweight firms with poor ESG scores, such as coal, oil, and gas producers, from their portfolios. The hope is that this increases the cost of capital to these firms by reducing their stock prices, but we are not clear as to what increasing the cost of capital would achieve in reducing net carbon emissions in our global society. The second approach is to engage with firms and cajole them to decarbonize and reduce carbon emissions. Passive investment managers take this approach for they are constrained to stay at the benchmark or the index, which includes retaining positions in carbon emitters. This approach has vague and uncertain outcomes as well. As already noted, we propose and model a third approach. The portfolio manager optimizes the portfolio to select investments to maximize the expected return in the portfolio for a given level of risk or a given objective, passive or active, and then buys carbon credits to offset the carbon emissions of the components of the companies in the portfolio. The portfolio becomes carbon neutral. The contents of the portfolio do contain carbon emitters. The goal of society is to reduce net carbon emissions globally. CO2 emissions do not stay in the U.S. or in Asia. They enhance global warming. Myron, what, what would it cost to make an index fund carbon neutral by buying carbon credits? The market prices of carbon credits exist and are traded in the active secondary market. Market prices determine the cost to be incurred by portfolio managers to make their portfolios net carbon neutral. At today's prices, to offset the carbon emissions of the S&P 500 portfolio costs about seven basis points per year. This is a known cost. For less developed market portfolios, the cost would be upwards to 35 basis points per year. The portfolio manager could offer two portfolios to its investors, one optimized but without any carbon offsets or any carbon considerations and the other a clone that differs from the first portfolio and it buys credits to offset entirely the carbon emissions of the second portfolio for a known cost. What's the benefit of providing one portfolio that's carbon neutral and the other that doesn't buy carbon credits? Investors would choose a convex combination of these two spanning portfolios to satisfy their own utility or preferences as to decarbonization, given the known costs of credits and the prices they are willing to pay to reduce the net CO2 emissions of their investments. Firms move to decarbonize by producing their own carbon offsets, so-called white carbon, by changing production methods, inventions, etc. This 
takes time and will not occur instantaneously. There are failures and successes that are revealed in time to wean ourselves off of coal, oil, and natural gas is likely to take multiple decades. With increasing demand to decarbonize, new innovations are a growth engine for the global economy. Other firms might invest in producing offsets by planting forests or expanding the use of plants in the ocean, so-called green and blue carbon credits, that sell as carbon credits to others. Not all of these are successful projects. Many will fail. The successful offsets will sell through the over-the-counter credit market. Although a young market, amazingly 350 million metric tons of carbon credits were sold in the voluntary market in 2021, these credits theoretically would neutralize $4.3 trillion of investment in the S&P 500. Although carbon credits are only band-aids as the transition to a greener economy moves forward, Credits are a necessary band-aid that will slow down the bleeding dramatically. The band-aid might be a competing solution to move to slow down global warming by capturing carbon emissions. When the price of carbon credits increase, more credits are produced and companies are incentivized to move more quickly to decarbonize. This is exactly what society wants to achieve. Well, isn't isn't excluding a firm from a portfolio, isn't that costless? Doesn't that produce a better result in our fight to limit global emissions? Excluding firms from a portfolio is not costless or cost-effective. Constraints are costly if they have value. They will produce lost returns or increase volatility because of reduced portfolio diversification. Over the last 15 or so years, the annual loss return of the S&P 500 ESG portfolio constrained to hold higher scoring ESG firms was over 1% per year less than the unconstrained S&P 500 itself. And this ESG constrained portfolio has higher volatility. This might be a spurious result, however. The time frame is short and it is hard to measure differences in returns. The main point is that unlike carbon credits, with a known cost to achieve net carbon emissions, the benefits of exclusion are uncertain and are unknown. Portfolio managers can build net carbon neutral portfolios with known costs because the market prices of carbon credits exist. They can assess the quality and manage the credits that they acquire for their investors. This is a function they can perform. And given the cost, each investor can decide how much they would be willing to pay to produce a net carbon benefit. A portfolio exists, and then their investors in the portfolios can make their own decisions. Investors will know the costs and will assess their own benefit to reduce the CO2 emissions of their portfolios and do so cost-effectively when compared to other alternatives. Why? Because carbon credits are priced in the market. Well, okay. Well, some people argue that buying credits is slippery and investors would just reject it. Aren't carbon credits a bad solution to the problem of reducing global emissions? The complaint, however, that I often hear with this approach is that the portfolio will be still hold, for example, horrible polluters such as coal mining companies. No one who cherishes the environment would hold such companies. 
although the portfolio is net carbon neutral, the contents are awful for society. If we take the portfolio view, however, it is carbon neutral. Portfolios can also be made carbon neutral by excluding net carbon emitters, such as the coal companies. Holding only companies that are carbon neutral are fudging to some extent by buying companies with relatively good ESG scores has a cost in lost diversification and possibly lost returns with uncertain benefits. Excluding some firms means that someone else has to hold them. Do index funds hold them? Do those who care less about the emissions hold them? Or are they sold to foreign investors who are unconstrained and don't invest in reducing carbon emissions at all? Exclusion is an unknown event and will not necessarily result in the desired result at all. Companies generate their own offsets now and are given credit for these offsets by reporting their net carbon emissions. They buy credits produced by others who are more efficient at producing carbon offsets. This is just a division of labor. Portfolio managers could do the same. Net emissions are important in society to gauge global warming. Gross emissions are secondary in the global fight to reduce our net carbon footprint. Encouraging the generation of new credits in the green or blue carbon credit market benefits the global economy and encourages innovation. Global warming does not score any form of carbon offset differently. And throwing out U.S. coal companies from portfolios, thereby increasing their cost of capital, might lead them to give up the business to coal producers in other countries that use cheaper energy sources to compete against U.S. producers while still emitting CO2 into the atmosphere. This is a global problem. We do not claim that the portfolio method is the only method. We think that it is cost-effective, and its value is known. Its cost is known. Credit markets are surviving and growing. This is a proof of concept and that an innovation is succeeding. Okay, I've read, I've read that uh, carbon credit markets are full of false claims and invalid credits. Do you agree? And what do you think the future holds for this market? Another complaint we hear is that the carbon credit market is inefficient and credits are spurious or sold multiple times. This relates back to our innovation discussion. Innovations must lead infrastructure. Successful innovations lead to more infrastructure and controls. The carbon credit markets are growing. Infrastructure is weeding out bad actors and attracting participants who value the carbon credit approach as a bona fide mechanism to capture carbon globally and to reduce the net emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. Portfolio managers, in our view, have another approach to consider reducing net carbon emissions in their portfolios, and it might be a superior approach to exclusion or to cajoling companies to reduce their carbon exposures. Could you comment on your idea of infrastructure following innovation in the context of other recent financial novelties like uh, cryptocurrencies or NFTs, non-fungible tokens? Yes, this is a good question. Many uh, previous financial market crises have occurred because innovation was too far ahead of infrastructure. There is a balance that must be maintained between too cumbersome an infrastructure and too far ahead innovation. For example, in October 1987, the market collapsed 
and fell over 20% in one day. The New York Stock Exchange Commission claimed that this was because of portfolio insurance and lack of regulation of futures contracts. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange Commission, on the other hand, which I was on, claimed that most likely the crash resulted from a lack of infrastructure on the New York Stock Exchange to handle the increased volume of trades that occurred around that time and that Congressman Rostenkowski stated a few days earlier that he proposed to tax mergers and acquisitions and the market sold off dramatically in these stocks, resulting in a cascade of selling in the marketplace. For example, the 2007-2008 crisis resulted from a lack of infrastructure to support the explosive growth of securitization of subprime mortgages and the lack of concern of the banks about the credit risks of the more secure securitized pools. With cryptocurrencies, the problems are obvious. Hackers are stealing currencies. Cyber controls are weak. Credit risk monitoring is weak. Algorithmic stable coins at $1 collapse because of ill-conceived infrastructure to support the claim of a stable currency. There are many who write about and teach about these infrastructure risks and the lack of infrastructure development. But experiencing loss is a way to really understand risks. Old warriors retire or quit after experiencing losses. New entrants don't have any experience. They might learn about it through books, but they don't have the experience to really internalize it and understand it. War generals know this and always send fresh troops up the hill to attempt to take the hill once again. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well then let's go back to carbon and the earth and the planet. As investors and funds, let's suppose they all start to begin decarbonizing their portfolios in the way you described. What effect do you think that would have or what do you expect that would have on new carbon offset projects and registries and maybe even ultimately on the environment as a whole? If the price of carbon offsets sold as credits increase, go up, okay, new projects will be developed and stored credits from older projects will be sold, okay? Increases in prices results in more carbon capture and reduction of global warming. These new carbon capture projects reduce net carbon in the environment. This benefits society. Increasing carbon credit prices, however, could lead to the production of spurious credits. Obviously, then, as new projects come online, additional policing and controls become necessary to validate the increasing supply of credits. Makes sense. Makes sense. You know, it's funny. In environmental discussions, there's, there's, often, a, there's often a prevailing notion of people versus nature. But your approach here is one of people acting together with nature through the power of markets. What, what is it about markets that allows them to solve such enormous problems in effective ways? Great question. Behind markets are prices. Prices allow entities to make trade-offs. Those entities that are decarbonizing through producing white solutions to use market prices to determine the speed with which they will invest and develop new technology. Moreover, prices are key to determine the effects of actions on outcomes. 
The carbon credit market provides signals as to the price that clears the market for offsets. Entities use these prices to decide whether to use or trade their own offsets. Portfolio managers do likewise. For those with skills to generate additional carbon credits, price increases signal them to produce additional credits to sell to others. This is another example of the division of labor or skills in our society. In ESG discussions, how do we value or price societal or governance issues at firms? Yes, profit-making firms take these into account, but without market prices, it is difficult to weight them. With market prices, portfolio managers or corporations can buy credits or depending on internal values versus external market values do not depend on that. In other words, with market prices, portfolio managers or corporations can buy credits or not, depending on their internal values versus external market values. Awesome. All right. Well, one last question. Okay. Regardless of anything, there will always be some, maybe even many investors who say that, uh, you know, polluters like coal companies, they should just be excluded from the portfolio. Who cares? Regardless of cost or carbon credit availability, no matter what, even to make the portfolio net carbon, they don't care about that. They just want to exclude. What's your response to these investors? If an investor values the exclusion of coal companies much more than the cost of carbon credits and the cost of exclusion, I will argue that they should exclude them from their portfolio if they can, or short them if they want to go to the extreme and buy carbon credits to decarbonize, okay, the remaining part of their portfolio. But the point is, depending on their preferences, sometimes the cost-benefit calculator is dominated by personal preferences. Thanks, Myron. And thanks to our listeners for joining in. If you'd like to listen to any other episodes in the series or explore our other podcasts, you can subscribe to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or, I don't know, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, check out the Insights page on JaniceHenderson.com for additional timely content from our investment experts. presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, and not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration, example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value. Environmental, social and governance, ESG, or sustainable investing considers factors beyond traditional financial analysis. This may limit available investments, and cause performance and exposures to differ from, and potentially be more concentrated in certain areas, than the broader market. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part.
The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janus Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janus Capital International Limited, registration number 3594615, Henderson Global Investors Limited, registration number 906355, Henderson Investment Funds Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London East C2M, 3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Henderson Management SA, registration number B22848 at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B. The US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group PLC. C. Canada through Janus Capital Management LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D. Singapore by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, Co. Registration number 19970078 N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E. Hong Kong by Janus Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. Taiwan ROC by Janus Henderson Investors Taiwan Limited, independently operated, Suite 45A1, Taipei 101 Tower, Number 7, Section 5 Sinyi Road, Taipei, 110, Telephone, 0281-001-1001. Approved SICE License Number 023, issued in 2018 by Financial Supervisory Commission. G. South Korea by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. H. Japan by Janus Henderson Investors, Japan, Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instruments business. I. Australia and New Zealand by Janus Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 4712427951818, and its related bodies corporate including Janus Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531. AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 4316417244, AFSL 444268. J. The Middle East by Janice Capital International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson is a trademark of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1222-46424. 12-15-25